This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Jamie Weinstein. My guest today is an old friend, Tim Mack. You've seen his byline in the Daily Beast and Politico, or heard his voice on NPR, where he worked for a good period of time. Now, uh, over the last year, he has started his own publication at Substack, the counteroffensive.news, where he covers the war in Ukraine, where we talk to him uh, from Kiev about what is going on there, what is the state of the war, what are the consequences if the U.S. doesn't pass legislation to continue funding the war, uh, and what it is like to cover a tragic conflict as intensely as Tim has covered this conflict. I hope you find this conversation as educational, as interesting as I did. Without further ado, I give you Mr. Tim Mack. Tim Mack, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start, Tim, uh, but maybe just uh, telling us where in Ukraine you are right now and, and where you are uh, recording this interview and maybe giving us a little color. What time is it there? Um, uh, and and uh, what, what was your day like? Well, you never want to be too specific about your location in a war zone. <laughs> okay, me, fair enough. <laughs> let me tell you where I, I am, generally speaking, without you know addresses or uh, Fair enough. GPS coordinates. Um, I'm in the city center of Kiev, uh, very close to, um, you know, the the central part of uh, the capital city here, and um, you know, it's it's the evening here. Uh, it's the morning in the United States, but uh, uh, it's about five thirty, and I'm in a city that doesn't have really very reliable internet access right now. I'm really glad we're able to talk. But a lot of Ukrainians don't have access to their cell phones or access to their home internet uh, because there was a Russian hacking attack on Kyivstar, the largest telecommunications provider in the country. And this isn't just you know an idle uh, an idle uh, threat. I mean, this is uh, it's not it's more than just uh, oh I can't get access to my Instagram. Um, people in Ukraine rely on the internet to get access to critical things like air raid alerts and to figure out when there's incoming drone attacks or missile attacks. Um, so that's really been the, the the setting of the mood this week is is not having this critical infrastructure. And and for those listening who will probably hear this when it's published Monday, we're recording this Friday morning, East Coast time, and as Tim just said, uh, evening in Ukraine. Um, Tim, let's, let's begin then just with a, a general question. What is the state of the war in Ukraine? Um, well, right now, uh, we're, at a, we're at a period where Ukrainian uh, political and military leaders are starting to acknowledge that the counteroffensive that had been underway in the spring and summer uh, just hasn't yielded the results that they had hoped for. Um, and that fierce fighting leading to thousands of deaths on both sides, both on the Russian side, more dramatically, um, but also on the Ukrainian side, 
um, ha- has led to not tremendous changes in the strategic picture. And the question now is what to do next. And there's a real dreary attitude in Ukraine, in Kyiv right now, because there's so much uncertainty about what the strategy ought to be next, about whether they can count on the U.S. as a, as a reliable ally, whether aid is going to come through in 2024, whether the EU will approve a package of military aid or allow Ukraine to enter as a member of the EU in the coming years, um, whether it can rely on security guarantees from whether it's NATO or uh, other partners. Um, Ukraine's feeling a pretty alone right now. I, I think it's it's safe to say, even though there's a lot of verbal support, theoretical support, and a, and a broad coalition of countries that support Ukraine, um, right now it feels very vulnerable. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. And um, there are attacks in Kyiv on a near daily basis recently. As I mentioned, a, a, a cyber attack as well. Um, there, there's just There are just a lot of unanswered questions about what the future holds. And, and we're going to get into some of the, the issues you raised, particularly the, the, the funding debate here in, in Washington. Um, but what is it like in the mood? You know, sometimes we don't understand that, you know, cities operate uh, when when there's a war going on. What is what is it like to live uh, in uh, the capital city of Ukraine, Kiev? Uh, what is what is the mood like? Um, and, and, you know, what what are the conversations that you have with people on a daily basis? Is it all about the war or? or uh, does life go on uh, while you know while war is going on in the front lines? Life goes on in some ways. Um, people go out for dinner. Um, uh, they'll have a drink, um, but everyone rushes home in time for curfew, which is at midnight, and then waits for you know what is almost felt inevitable every day, which is a bunch of explosions waking up at four o'clock in the morning, um, and then trying to get back to sleep. Um, I don't think I've had a conversation in recent months that didn't in some way, um, you know, revolve around the war. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, it's, it's impossible to imagine um, having a conversation without. I mean, not every single conversation all the time um, uh, is about the conflict, but um, there, there, there is no discussion of you know, 15 or 20 minutes or, or longer that doesn't in some way touch on it. I mean, it, it's a part it's this terrifying part of everyday life. And it's, it's, it's a war that has touched pretty much anyone that you'll come in contact with here in Ukraine, um, whether personally in a financial way or they've got family members on the front lines or they know someone who's been killed or terribly, terribly wounded. Everyone's been touched by it. And it is obviously, you know, it's like the predominant topic of conversation. Well, you mentioned uh, one of the conversations happening in D.C. right now is a question over uh, aid Ukraine that's being tied um, to a debate about border security. Uh, it's unclear how that will play out. Are those topics that you hear on the street that people are talking about this debate in Washington? Is that a uh, uh, something that has occupied a lot of the the debate on you know local TV? Yeah, I mean it. It's really it's astonishing sometimes to uh, to go to foreign countries. Um, I'm an American, and and you know you go to the foreign countries, and you sometimes you sometimes feel like people in foreign countries are keeping a closer eye on American politics than Americans are in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I've been to foreign countries and they've gone into just the, the, the just the, um, 
the tiniest pieces of minutia, you know, citing Newt Gingrich and the contract with America uh, in the mid-90s to make a point or something like that. That happened to me recently when I was reporting in Taiwan. Um, you know, people really, really pay it. It's not an abstraction. Foreign policy isn't an attract, abstraction to the residents of Taiwan and Ukraine. It's part of their daily lives. And it makes a difference as to whether or not people live or die. And so, yeah, I mean, it is as important as any uh, local political debates that are happening uh, is what's happening in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. What do you think the consequences would be if there was no aid package? I mean, it seems like a possibility that there will be no aid package uh, that is passed. Um, I don't know what percentage chance that is, um, but it's not zero. What what happens to Ukraine if that's the case? It, it, it's hard for me to tell, but it, I think whatever happens, it, it will be catastrophic for the Ukrainian war effort. Um, you know, a, a lot of people are are describing the war in Ukraine poorly, I think, by calling it a stalemate. And the stalemate doesn't quite capture the ferocity of the fighting that's happening to keep the lines as they are at the particular moment. You know, there are artillery duels happening as we are talking. These artillery duels are happening. And they're expending thousands upon thousands of rounds um, in order to keep the battle lines where they are right now. And in order to sustain that amount of fire, and in order to sustain the amount of drones that they're putting out there, uh, longer-range missiles that they're putting out there, um, they need Western support, in particular from their, uh, until this date, closest ally and support of the United States of America. Um, so without it, um, I think we're having a conversation in 2024 about whether Ukraine will be put on its back foot and might be forced into a defensive posture to hold what it has rather than what we're talking about this year, which was a counteroffensive to regain territory. And in any case, it would be a real catastrophe, like I said, a real catastrophe for the Ukrainian war effort. Let, let me ask you about. I, I was doing some research for this this interview. Uh, obviously, don't follow Ukraine uh, as closely as you do, but you know uh, it's not a daily uh, you know focus in my reading. Uh, and I went back and read a Time Magazine piece from October. It was a profile of Zelensky. Um, and so, I, the question, and I'll read the quote: is 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 the war winnable even with the aid? Because this this is what. It said in the article, in some branches of the military, the shortage of personnel has become even more dire than the deficit in arms and ammunition. One of Zelensky's close aides tells me that even if the U.S. and its allies come through with all the weapons they have pledged, we don't have the men to use them. A rather astonishing fact um, that's been reported publicly is the average age of the Ukrainian soldier is 43 years old. You can't even join the U.S. Army. Uh, if you're older than 35, without an exception. Um, it, it tells you the tragic fact of how many young people have been killed in the war thus far over the past almost two years now. Um, and it means that from a manpower standpoint, um, Ukraine needs to develop and execute a strategy that um, gets a replenishment of their ranks. Um, you know, you hear all sorts of stories here in Ukraine about pe people just being pulled off the streets or while they're working out at the gym um, and conscripted right on the spot to to go fight. I mean, it's uh, it's a daily fact of reality. But what we haven't heard yet is that is a uh, is a high level strategy from the Ukrainian government as to how they're going to address this problem. 
Um, and 2024 is going to be a difficult year if they don't find a uh, sustainable strategy to bring that figure down um, and to get enough troops to do the fighting that's necessary to be done. What is What does victory look like for Ukraine? If you ask 100 people, they'll give you 100 answers. Um, uh, everyone has a different idea of what it means in their mind. Some people say, oh, it means the return of Crimea and all the territories in the original borders of Ukraine. Um, one Ukrainian politician had uh, a really interesting definition of victory, um, which I think is, is, is um, illustrative. Um, he said that I'll know that Ukraine has won when I'm able to go into the airport at Kiev and take a flight uh, to The Hague where I can watch uh, Russian officials, including Vladimir Putin, uh, get tried at, at the International Criminal Court. And so that definition of victory has two elements. One is the resumption of normal economic activity. You can't fly in Ukraine right now. You can't, you can't take a plane into the country um, because of active hostilities. And then the second element is the element of accountability for the atrocities that have happened. Um, but, you know, every, you know, again, ask, ask people uh, this question and you'll get a range of answers from, uh, uh, from the money that they feel like they're owed from Russia to territorial, uh, regaining territorial um, possession of, of uh, what they call temporarily occupied areas. Uh, to financial recovery and, and the resumption of economic activity um, uh, and, and accountability for the violations of law and, uh, uh, and human decency that have been committed by Russian forces. Uh, it's a really broad and difficult question. Obviously, one would hope that you could have justice like that. Um, but I guess my question to you, are either of those scenarios realistic? Either taking back Crimea uh, and some of those other territories, um, or the idea that Ru that Vladimir Putin is going to be tried at the Hague. I, I don't know, even know how would that happen. Uh, well, governments collapse, um, administrations change, people fall out of favor. Vladimir Putin is the leader of Russia right now, uh, but he might not always be. Um, it sounds like a far fetched scenario, um, but it's certainly not impossible. And, uh, you know, a, a trial at The Hague means more than just um, the actual court process of uh, having a world leader be brought in front of cameras or, or whatever else. Um, firstly, it's a signal of international moral outrage uh, about actions uh, and war crimes committed. Um, it's a restriction on Putin's ability to travel freely throughout the world. Um, uh, and so there are lots of different measures of accountability that may not involve the direct physical presence of Vladimir Putin at The Hague that could lead to some res uh, some personal responsibility being imposed on 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 Putin for his actions um, without, you know, it, you know, but that doesn't sound like an immediate likelihood. Um, but, you know, the stranger things have happened and there are things short of that um, that outcome that would still impose similar costs. As for the regaining of territorial uh, integrity of Ukraine and sovereignty over temporarily, what they call temporarily occupied areas, um, the war is ongoing. I mean, you could have looked at various points in uh, the American Civil War, in World War I, World War II, obviously parts of the Korean War, 
and said, well, the war is lost um, and been quite pessimistic about the, uh, about the, about the outcome. What I can say is that right now, the will to win among the vast majority of Ukrainians is not diminished. Uh, they very much want this to happen. And the question is, will they get the support from its closest allies in the U.S. and, and in Europe uh, who have said, uh, many officials have said that they'll be with Ukraine as long as it takes. Was that, did the U.S. really mean it when they said that? Did Europe really mean it when it said that? Um, or will that just turn out to be hollow? I mean, that's that's the big question uh, among Ukrainians right now. Um, certainly, they can't make large-scale territorial gains without continued support from its closest allies. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. Well, I think you anticipated uh, my my next question, which is, is that the mood on the street that, you know, that this is not a question about settling for less? Uh, this is about going until there is a breakthrough in potential victory? Uh, I mean, is there any a constituency in Ukraine uh, for a some sort of deal short of returning all the territory that that Russia took uh, from Ukraine. To get a deal, you need to start negotiations. And what a lot of people outside of Ukraine forget is that for many years, since the illegal annexation of Crimea, Ukraine was involved in negotiations with Russia and made very many concessions in order to come to some sort of diplomatic solution in eastern Ukraine. And what did they get from this? They got the full-scale invasion of the country, uh, what is now more than 100,000 alleged war crimes committed on their territory, um, untold number of people killed and wounded, lives changed forever. And that was the, that was the outcome from their last round of talks with the Russians. I, I, no matter how bad it's gotten and how pessimistic folks are about the future right now, I don't sense a mood at all in terms of opening up diplomatic talks. We're not nearly to that point, I, I, I don't think. I mean, I, it, it just, I, um, I hear people talking about talking, but I think ultimately they know that there's a long road ahead before any negotiations could you know, feasibly be suggested and, and implemented. And that's just to start conversations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah 
Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What, what do you think Vladimir Putin's current goals are? I mean, what, I mean, can you speak to what his original goal was with the war? I mean, it seemed like it was broader in the beginning. He was, uh, you know, marching uh, farther uh, uh, west. Um, what was his goals in the beginning and what you see as his, his goals right now, if they're any different? Yeah, his original goals were to extinguish the idea of Ukraine as a separate identity, separate from uh, from the idea of Russia. Um, and the, what he, what he would call the Ruski Mir, the Russian world. Um, uh, Ru- Russia and, and uh, the Russian government and Vladimir Putin just don't think that Ukraine has the right to exist as a separate entity. Um, and he intended in the, at the beginning of the full scale invasion to subjugate Ukraine, to bring it back under the control of Russia, uh, in practice and in terms of authority. Uh, and I don't see that his, I don't see that his aims have changed. He's given a, he was, he was, a, he was at a, he had a kind of statement or press conference, however you want to call it this week. And he still thinks that his goal for this full scale invasion is to quote, denazify and quote, demilitarize Ukraine. His, his, his goals haven't changed. And for all the West's unity in the early days of this full scale invasion, Vladimir Putin made a bet that in the long term that Fissures will form in the coalition to support Ukraine. And the question is, is he right? Um, will the United States validate, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's long-term strategic bet? Um, that remains to be seen. Um, that is up to Congress, and that's up to the EU and uh, various European states. But right now, it's looking pretty dire. Well, it also seems to be, even if Congress uh, funds Ukraine this time, it seems partly up to the 2024 presidential election. Um, what is the discussion on the streets of if Donald Trump wins again, uh, becomes president again, which seems um, like a very possible outcome uh, in the United States? Purely from the perspective of the Ukrainian war effort, it would be a catastrophe. I think there's no argument about it. Um, it's funny, I've been thinking a lot about um, how this country in Eastern Europe has become such an important part of the political conversation in Washington, D.C., across the U.S. Um, for the last decade. Everything from, do you remember the platform at the RNC in 2016 when the Trump campaign intervened to change the language to be more pro-Russia? I was in the room, or sorry, I was right outside the room when that platform debate was was going on and, and I was writing about it all the way to um, that phone call that uh, that Trump called the perfect phone call where he blackmailed uh, Zelensky uh, trying to get dirt on um, uh, on the Bidens 
um, in order to get a you know personal political advantage to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine has become, uh, from 2014 and the annexation of, of Crimea onwards, it, the central issue um, uh, that, that's, that's really had huge impacts on uh, American foreign policy thinking and what America really views as its role in the world. What do, what do you, I mean, explain, there are a lot of voices in the United States um, who don't see a consequence to Ukraine losing. They might want Ukraine to win, um, but it's unclear to them what the, the, the kind of consequence would be to the United States and the West. What would you say to them? Well, we did a story on counteroffensive.news about, it was titled, How to Talk to Your Republican Uncle About Ukraine. And what we did was we, I mean, one of our big philosophies at the counteroffensive as a publication is to use human stories to illustrate the news and to make it more personal, to make it more compelling, to make you feel a little bit more of a connection to what's happening. And so we told the story of a man named Oleg Sentsov, who was a, who is a filmmaker turned soldier fighting on the front lines. And we posed that question to him. I mean, what, what, what are the strategic challenges here? And it turns out that what he said was the same answer that was a result of focus groups held by Republicans um, who support Ukraine uh, to try to figure out what works in terms of talking to your Republican friends or family members uh, in order to, to convince them that supporting Ukraine is the right thing to do. The big thing about this is that um, Ukraine, what America does with Ukraine isn't isolated to just what happens in Eastern Europe or Europe more broadly. What happens to you in Ukraine is a message to authoritarians all around the world, most um, most especially Xi Jinping, and whether he feels like uh, it's in the strategic interest of China to try to redraw borders by force, like Putin is trying to do right now. Originally, the message of Ukraine was that the West will band together, unite, will sanction you, will send weapons to your opponent, and will isolate you. The message over time to Putin and to China and to Bashar al-Assad and to authoritarians all over the world is that if you stick the course, Western unity will crack. And, uh, and you know, all those denunciations, uh, all those denunciations are, are, are going to end up fading. Um, ultimately, uh, it's a terrible message to send to autocrats. Everywhere in the world. You, you write uh, at the counteroffensive a lot, uh, or at least I, I read this week about the domestic politics is still going on. Uh, I think you were at a protest locally. Um, uh, you see fighting back and forth. Uh, Klitschko of, of Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of um, of Kiev, uh, called uh, Zelensky becoming more authoritarian. Uh, speak to like the domestic politics, the, the internal debate, and is it possible that? I, I think there's no elections during the war, but is it possible that this this war will continue and it, it, we could see a new a new leader uh, of the country other than Zelensky while while they're fighting uh, Russia? There's supposed to be. There's scheduled. There was scheduled an election in 2024, um, but right now uh, all signs point to that being postponed because of martial law, and uh, uh, so in the near term, it's unlikely that there will be a presidential election and uh, Zelensky replaced. Um, but, you know, Ukraine is one of those new democracies, yes, but one that was formed on the back of popular protest. It is, it is a country with a really vibrant and active civil society. 
and they fight about everything. <laughs> you know, as a healthy democracy does, people disagree um, very urgently with one another about issues large and small. And there are fights between the mayor of Kiev and the president of Ukraine. There are, uh, you know, uh, very passionate discussions about how the budgets ought to be done. Um, and there are protests. I was down at a protest earlier this week in the stinging rain in the cold. There's snow and ice on the ground. And people are out there chanting over an issue that you would think, you know, not that many people would be on the streets about. They're chanting about the Kiev local city budget. And they're arguing about, well, should we dedicate more uh, money towards fixing roads or should we just send all the money to the military and focus on the war until the war is over? That's a healthy thing uh, in, in any democracy. And standing there amongst the chanting and the demonstrations and the protests seeing myself really for the first time since the full-scale invasion began in this um, in this crowd of young people demanding political change it was really refreshing and it, it felt like you know this is this is what freedom feels like this is what the point of freedom is is to be able to do this and, and this is the sort of thing that doesn't happen in Russia um, it, it, it's funny I mean I, I've met a lot of people who say you know Zelensky, didn't vote for him, but, um, you know, uh, he's really stepped up in a way that I never expected he would. He stayed in Kiev when the full-scale invasion began at great personal risk. He didn't flee, and I respect him for that. That said, they'll continue. I wouldn't vote for him next time. <laughs> and that's like, that's like a, that's, you know, that's, that's the right of every democratic citizen to be a weirdo in this, in this political sense, you know? I mean, it's, it's like, um... It's like, you know, the, the guy right behind you, actually, Churchill, after World War II, was immediately voted out of office. Uh, the, your, your listeners might not uh, see this because we're, we're talking on, uh, on a video conference call, but right behind Jamie, there's a big, big portrait of Winston Churchill. Big Churchill holding a Tommy gun in my office. I, you know, Tim, I want to close at the end just uh, with, with you just telling uh, a little bit of your story and how you came to cover the war in Ukraine. But I, I do want to press one point. Uh, that kind of popped into my mind, and, and I didn't press at the time because it does seem a little bit of a dichotomy. And and that is, um, on one hand, th there seems to be no, um, you know, all the Ukrainians seem to believe that their only choice is to fight on. On the other hand, you have recruiters who are having to sometimes take by force people who don't want to go and fight uh, in the war and having trouble actually recruiting people uh, to go to the front lines. Uh, if you could just speak to, to how we should take those two pieces of information. Yeah, I mean, the tragedy of this war having gone for nearly two years and the, the incredible number of uh, fatalities on the front lines uh, ha has meant, and we've written extensively about this, and, and, and my Ukrainian colleagues at the counteroffensive have written about this in very moving and passionate ways. Um, it's the terrible fact is that the people who are most motivated to join the military in the early stages, uh, uh, many of them are now dead. And Ukraine has lost some of its best people in terms of creativity, in terms of passion, in terms of motivation, in terms of civic duty. Ukraine has lost some of its best people. Um, and what I'd say to that is I'd turn the mirror on the United States. Did the United States require conscription in World War I and World War II? Did it require conscription in the Vietnam War? Of course it did. It did. Um, does that mean that the causes were not just? Did that mean that the United States 
was, you know, improper in pushing their citizens. War is a terrible thing. And, uh, you know, and looking at the conditions on the front line, I wouldn't wish that on anyone to be bombarded in the cold and in the dark, sitting in trenches that are either filled with mud or filled with ice. Um, these are things that, you know, people, you know, your average person would be crazy to, 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 to jump up and, and volunteer for. Um, I'm not excusing it, but I'm trying to explain, you know, why it is that people need to be pushed into these situations. Um, and conscription is is a reality here in Ukraine. Um, I think most people understand that. Um, and uh, the, it's, a, it's an inevitable result of the war lasting far longer than, uh, than anyone would like it to, to be. It was about a year ago, Tim, I think. We were at a bar in Washington, D.C. Uh, you were thinking about next steps after NPR. You didn't know which route uh, you were going to take. And then all of a sudden, um, I read uh, that you're starting a publication. You're going to go live uh, in Ukraine where you had covered for NPR. What has it been like uh, to, to uh, A, be a, a kind of a go from journalism to journalist slash entrepreneur uh, in, in terms of starting a publication and, and running uh, a business covering, uh, you know, a very uh, uh, sad at many times and, and difficult subject. Um, just want to give you the floor to, to, to talk about that a little bit. Um, it's one of those things I, I thought I was, um, I thought I was uh, starting a journalism uh, initiative, and it turns out I'm I'm launching a startup in a war zone, and all the things as a journalist you take for granted um, being done behind the scenes suddenly you're in charge of it. Um, when you start a small business, as, as any one of your listeners who has done that knows, suddenly you're in charge of legal, HR, marketing, taxes, management. And then on top of that, you're in charge of, you know, uh, the journalism, editing, writing, photography, and everything else. And, and then, and that's been, a, <laughs> that's been a real challenge beyond the logistical challenge of working in a war zone to begin with. Um, and in terms of feeling, one of the things that, um, you know, that I've, I've tried to describe to folks uh, is that um, there, there's a sense of stress and anxiety that falls on you that sticks with you as long as you're in country. There's no place really, even though you're not at the immediate front lines, when you can really fully relax, fully relax and, um, you know, unclench your fist, you know, um, because at any moment an air alert can sound, any moment uh, drones or, can come in, uh, or missiles can come in. Um, you know, but here's the thing. I'm, I'm really motivated. Um, the, the counteroffensive has been really interesting as a publication. Um, and your listeners can, can check it out at counteroffensive.news. Um, it, you know, w- what we try to do is we try to differentiate ourselves from, um, your average straight news. We, we take every story of the news from the perspective of a person going through it. And we do, really deep human profiles that center on people who are going through in many exper- in, in many instances the worst days of your life or uh, the worst days of their life um, and uh, we try to we try to do these compelling personal stories that illustrate what's going on at a ground level in Ukraine um, and that's been really interesting and it seems to have struck a chord because it's it's, it's very different from the other kinds of journalism that that's coming out of Ukraine uh, right now. We don't just tell you what happened today. We we introduce you to a person who went through it, um, and that that seemed to that seemed to um, motivate people to to read us. And I'm I'm really 
really grateful for folks who have expressed an interest. Tim Mack, thank you for joining the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks so much for having Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.